Twelve guardians watched over my child's dreams, sometimes soft as peaked cream, sometimes gods of stone, always minding, always men. started by a group of island people coming together and deciding they wanted a writing class. Initially I believe they wanted it to be a women's class but they themselves decided not to have it that way and they asked me to do it and they told the VEC they wanted it and I think the VEC is a wonderful organisation, probably the best in the country, simply because they can work without bureaucracy in a very short period they respond to a demand from the ground if a group of people get together and say we want a class in X then the VEC will provide that very quickly now that takes fairly forward thinking people in my case it meant having to finance the trips into the island you know and having to have the belief that we could put a a writers group together on an island which has never had one and which has actually skipped a generation of writers in fact from what I can see we started I think with probably roughly 15 16, that sort of number. I suppose regularly about 10, I'd say 10 to 12. Um, The class by its nature was a little more irregular than I would have wanted because there were a lot of days I couldn't sail, you know. Um, And that's a bit difficult because you lose the momentum when that happens. However, the commitment to it was huge. And it's the second round of classes that really achieves something, in my opinion. The first is just an introduction. But then for the second term, what happens is a lot of people who had no confidence to start with are gaining confidence, but also people who actually believe that a writing class is something they couldn't come to. Because, you know, they've never... They don't. In fact, if somebody once said to me, what exactly is creative writing? It's a good question, you know. A lot of the people who may be the serious writers won't come out for the first class and hopefully for the second we'll have more. And also we build up the people's confidence to write in Irish, I'm hoping, for the second class, you know. I, in fact, I, I ask people who are native speakers to write in Irish if they can. Frequently they don't want to. And I will, deal with, I, I will then critique that, you know. Um, I have what I'm going to do increasingly as I get more Irish work in is I'm going to involve poets like Cahal O'Sharkey and uh, there are a couple of interested Irish language poets who also understand the islands. I think that's very important, that you don't have somebody coming in trying to impose their own particular impression. I mean, I am very conscious that even though I'm from just out the road and I have island family connections, a couple of my sisters are married to islanders and one of them works and lives on the island, Um, which is how I started coming and my father knew the island very well. 
still I'm a guest on the island I think your role, my role is to facilitate and I'd be very anxious that anybody, any other writers involved would feel that, would feel that way you know, this funny noise that you hear underneath is going to stop when we stop reversing his father in law is a rotra, a ta, or honey to harp, tarach, quadach, karach, harigada. Do you want to go next, Mary? Let's do bridge. No, we can have fun. Would you mind? No. It's fine, it's all right. We can see it. <laughs> I don't know whether you want to talk about it beforehand or just read it. Weakness. Well, it's just about the warriors in Belfast. I come from a line of strong women, mostly dark, all carved from a harder rock than me. I am the thin fault that runs through the seam, a wave of quartz surfing through granite, condemned to masquerade. I am where history breaks and divides. Brittle and weak, I have been cast down before the upright women of my tribe, ashamed before their silent eyes. I carry weakness like a plague of tears. They ignore it, and with the unassailable mercy of their gaze that has not wavered once in 6,000 years and never lies, only the strong survive. I am spared for a doubtful... I'm from a place called Albrock, and uh, it's out near Slinehead, uh, about 50 miles from Galway and about 9 miles from Clifton, which is the nearest town. Mostly for some reason I remember it as a lonely place. A very lonely place, in fact. Um, I'm surrounded by beaches, very, very lovely beaches, very clean beaches. And uh, we live beside a hill and at the, as that hill enters the sea, there's a cave. And uh, a very lovely small little bay, which has a stony beach unusually, just before you come to the cave. And um, lots of beaches, lots of walks along beaches. We walked a lot in our family. And uh, I would have spent a lot of time by the sea, actually, you know, on the edge of the sea, walking on the shore as a child. And um, I've only recently become aware that people actually probably or possibly experience place differently. You know, that there's a surface experience and then there's a some other much deeper experience of a place. It became apparent to me at some point in time that it was possible, you know, certain rocks held memories for me, certain stones, the look of them even to this day, will spell a certain feeling. It was much later I realised that um, that probably isn't necessarily the same for everybody, uh, you know. Obviously, it seems to me now that I've always carried that place with me um, and probably will always carry carry it because it appears that it, 
forms a huge part of my lexicon of images. I think that's why. Um, as, as, as a poet, you have, above all, perhaps, along with language, the great armory that you have as your lexicon of images, that store of images. And I'm beginning to understand now that nothing that you can conjure or manufacture or make up is anywhere near as powerful as the ones you bring with you out of childhood. And even when you move to another place that, you know, liberates you somewhat. The forge. Still seems to be happening. Standing at the smithy door in the long evenings, I learned that the shape of things is forged in fire. My fingers itched for the bellows and the first pangs of forbidden attraction stirred, a slight pitch in the ground. Oh, I do not want to remember how the first nail was driven into a hoof, the horse's suppliant eyes, how you only had one chance. No, I do not want to remember how the blushing, bending iron soft and turned black as it was plunged into heavy water by the maker's unwavering hand. I do not want to know that this is the way of things that only pain bestows the right to speak of life and I am no good at bending with the wind. I am older now. I know they did not lie when they said what will not bend will break. They did not lie or else I was too weak. creative writing classes? It's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes I think they do a lot more harm than good. Um, I can afford to be cynical about them. Sometimes I think they're the, a curse. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm dubious about them in a way. But the cynicism disappears when you see people and you realise that for generations they have never been allowed permission, given themselves permission to have a voice for themselves. And the most that you can hope to do is to somehow get across that they have permission to speak for themselves if they wish to and to write from themselves if they wish that. I mean, you've no responsibility whatsoever for how disciplined they're going to become, whether they're writers or not. You've no control over that. You know, coming from the West especially, other people have been speaking about us and for us for generations in English particularly. It's always been other people telling us how to live and how not to live and what we ought to be and what we are and what we're not. And they've always got it wrong, let's face it. I mean, they've got it right from their point of view. But I think there's a, a serious need now for Connemara and the West to speak for itself in a considered and in its, in its diversity and its richness and its lack of political correctness, in fact, as well, you know because there's a, a sort of double thing going on here. Oh, sweet romance in Connemara, a soft day, a speckled hill, a mirror bay, all certain as the mountains swollen with heather, all transient as thrushes' eggs, the wild water and a streaked chameleon sky. Oh, no romance in Connemara, a speckled hen fasting under a basket, a whetted knife and the dance macabre, the musk of feathers in the Sunday stew. Yes, and when you lack the guts to wield the knife, what is it to the hungry child that you dwell in gossamer and dusk, 
Let them find out early that love has a bitter edge when life is lived among the rocks. Yet I have seen the sedge burn with slow fire. I have seen the lakes rise and make swirls of silk in the October sky. Oh, the price of leaving, the cost of coming home. You could set a clock every morning by the bike rattling down the hill. Different weather, different rig, different wind, different gear, same times, same place. Past the strand, round the village, down the pier. Once aboard, the usual greetings. Fine day, breezy, tis. Run out the gangway, load the humans. I wish Rosaville mit bicycle. I'll see you inside. Will I pay you now, or... I'll see you inside. Walk round the corner, look out for stragglers. Seamus bus, ancient cars, hippie in no hurry. Who can give them a clue? It's that time again. Run in the gangway, throw in the ropes, splash in the tide, hauled in and coiled down clockwise. Into the wheelhouse, pick up tickets, check change, find the pen and out on deck. Day in, day out. Tickets written as calligraphic rosary. We ferry neighbours and strangers, the dead and the newborn, the found and the lost across the bay. Where far hills shift shape ever and always, wave reflect wind and always and ever sea echoes sky. And then we return. Okay. The summer of 1956 was one of the hottest in New York City history. It was as if the sun came up in the middle of June and didn't bother to set until school opened in September. The Bronx shimmered in heat that hovered around the 100-degree mark daily. In the age before air conditioners, St. Anne's Avenue hummed with electric fans and radio music from the open windows. We had a brainless young setter named Boomer, whom my sister and I took turns hosting. I'm the eldest of ten, and uh, my father was a fisherman, and my uncle was a blacksmith. And, you know, <laughs> um, you can't get more Greek than that, I suppose, in one way. Uh, it's not surprising that anything that I read years later from the Greeks was um, very easily understandable to me in many ways. And um, it was tough. I mean, it must have been very tough on my mother and on my father, raising ten kids in the west of Ireland in those days. It's tough enough now, but it was very, very hard then. I mean, life has changed enormously even since the early 1970s. I suppose, uh, um, when, you think, when I think about it now, we must have been raised for the first, well, certainly for the first maybe 15 years of my life, in an Ireland that hadn't changed much in, what, 60 or 70 years? And not very much in the couple of hundred years before that. And then suddenly there was all this rapid change inside about 15 years. I know I started writing some kind of lyrics in secondary school on the choir. Um, and oddly enough, do you know what I started doing quite young? Translating Irish poems into English. There must have been horrendous translations when I look back on it. Um, and then I started writing my first year in college. I think I probably wrote quite a bit then. And... Um, but not very, very young, no. You didn't think of writing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It didn't occur to you. It would be like 
thinking of taking up the saxophone or something. I mean, you'd, you, it wasn't an option, you know. Um, I don't actually. I think my first the impetus. The cave. What shades will enter my dark cave tonight? Who will the moon render powerless or strong? What shapes? The fuss and tumble of a Hollywood battle scene? An unshriven soul, thin and white? Sea virgins might even now be swimming in with those grey ancestors of the Makonela, the seals. The toss and tangle of shawled women settling in for the long haul is certain. Certain the dark hours falling silently off all the precarious roofs of dreams. Frantic in the web of dreams on quiet authority. Those shrill or whispering ghosts, the ancestral dead, enter nightly claiming to be heard. They thrash the straits of broad and slender vowels choking on words. My mouth is racked like a poem stretched between spark and shape. Quilla quilla agus liahan le liahan mocks me. I listen to the seal's sweet haunt and trace its provenance. It shocks the ear. Are these the trap voices of the drowned? Or is it the strange cry of dumb creatures longing for something more to be human? Like ourselves, always we are doomed. I cannot put English on this, the song of unattainable things, so I hum. I have always lived by a sea cave where a dark man waits, incurious. His face half hidden, half seen, is like the incipient moon, unmoved, and like the moon he watches the night unfold. Useless to expect rescue, but nonetheless, we expected light. A flame slowly turned up like an oil lamp, eyes kindled by a swell of lost radiance. In light, the shawled women shrivel. Their incessant watching requires a veil. The dark man, illumined, is unmasked. Once would be enough. One deep kiss of light to eclipse the last pool of darkness in Europe and all sink back into shadow rested, confirmed that tomorrow will be glorious. The wait is ancient. No god has risen from this cold sea yet. Yet, on nights when the sky plunders the last drops of light from the water and waves innocent with tangled seaweed suck and mutter in the cave remember that not far from here a man broke faith in need of ballast for his boat he took the chapel stones from a sacred island later heaving them overboard uneasily he looked back and saw the stolen rocks float <laughs> I grew up two generations away from the Irish language, but with a lot of it still around me and enough of it 
to always reach for words that just weren't there. And when I started, really became serious about writing, this became a major issue for me. And, and the grief for the language was intense, very intense. In the poem, The Cave, that's, I mean, that's really what that's about. Uh, and that becomes in itself a metaphor for some kind of spiritual language, which we don't really have, you know, this constant, and for poetry itself, in fact, this constant striving for a voice and striving for to put words on something that is eternally unsayable by its nature. And, and so, therefore, the use of symbol and metaphor. Um, the loss of the language for me was a palpable thing. I, I, I still, I miss it, even though I never had it fully, you know. And um, it's, I think, because I'm just so aware of how much you lose with the language. Uh, you can go on without it, the, there's no question. And people adapt and adapt very well. But I realised as well that the structure of my English, the deep structure of my English, was very much an Irish structure. So there you are again, working on that. Um, the physical dispossession angered me hugely. And believe it or not, a lot of it came from growing up with the dandy and the bunty and the uh, the English comics. And this mad situation where every Sunday you'd be dying for your comic, which would tell you about the four Marys in boarding school and girls who had ponies and ballet lessons. And... Uh, when I saw in the flesh these very nice British people, it has to be said, or Anglo-Irish people, I mean kind, nice people, somewhere they made me feel so inadequate. They were so articulate. I have this picture of myself standing there being polite to these people who were very nice to me. And the picture I have is that I was frozen and very tight and very... Um, conscious of not having the words nor the um, the the knowledge, you know. I think even then I knew that at some level um, there was a power of articulation, and I wanted it. And I envied those people enormously, but I also hated them. I really think I hated them, not on any personal level, on quite a detached level because I felt that somehow they'd rob me of it. And of course... Is anyone working very much during the summer? Way, that was very true. Or are you finding your own... You are doing my own language. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's kind of what it came for, so... <laughs> I the, the summer's an excuse. Right. Mm. Formulating ideas. Right. What yes. about the notebooks, Michael? Are you all keeping the notebooks? Yeah, no. 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 Start. OK. <laughs> yeah, again. Just keeping notebooks, taking notes. You You can do that when you're not doing anything else. You lose a lot otherwise, you know? Yeah. Really. And the reading, obviously, that, you know, can be kept up anyway. We might think around themes because if we're thinking, you know, if we have like 15 or 20 different viewpoints of the theme, that's what kind of got us started in a way. It broke the ice. It did, yeah. Right. But I don't know, you know, it might be interesting to, um, to, to together decide on a theme and just go at it in our 19 different ways or something and see what we can use that way. Yeah, it's, it's a certainly a possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a thing I like to do much past the beginning, but that's not 
to say that we, for those who want to, are find it useful, we can certainly go ahead. Yeah, that's one. Anybody have any feelings about that? Well, the last time that was used, it acted as, as an icebreaker. It did, yeah. Um, I, I think one of the things that, that the courses need is, is something to get people into the flow of it mm. from, from, the, from the word go. And also, again, after the, sort of, the Christmas break, mm. you need to sort of start with a... Right, yeah. What might be interesting as well on that subject is I remember we started with journeys and the ferry and the you know the journeys to the island. It might be it might be useful to bring that notion up when we start again to see where people are going to hit hit it from now. <coughs> you know. That's what I'm thinking. Like when you see the variety in this Dublin, there's both my initial reaction was that I didn't want to do this in English because I'm obviously very deeply concerned about the death of the language uh, and in fact the rebirth of the language which I actually believe in but they wanted it in English also if you read Brendan O'Hare on Inishmore you know there's more Irish now spoken in Inishmore than there was at the time of Singh Inishmore was garrisoned were landlords there it was anglicised quite early. And there's a myth about Irish on Inishmore. There is still an awful lot of Irish on Inishmore. Killeney is almost totally Irish, for example. But um, it's their desire, but I know, I was a language teacher for a long time, and so I'm fairly sensitive to those needs, and I know that we can wheel around to the point where, through encouragement, quite a few people will actually find that what they really need to write in is Irish. And that's, that's a very big part of my job. If I, I mean, I'm already getting stuff in Irish, whereas in the beginning I wasn't getting any. And I have no doubt. And don't forget, I'm dealing with the mixed population. The reality of the island right now is a strange one. There are a lot of non-island-born people living here. Not all through marriage, you know. Quite a few have moved in because they, cho- they want to live on the island for whatever reasons. And... Um, I'm very anxious, obviously, that that does not in any way... Uh, I'm anxious to maintain the balance. But, you know, I can't act on a level of total prejudice against those people either. But my main... My concern is that this is serving the island. And I have... I'm, I'm more than happy that I have asked the island people. I've made my views on this very clear... And right now it's their wish to have it in English. They also know that I'm aiming to get it to the point where it's in Irish. And they're, ha- they're happy enough about that when the time comes. Shape of saying, where are we? Just a minute. Dylan Thomas is the colour of saying. It's a play on that, you know. Right. The shape of saying. They call it received English, as if it was a gift you got by dint of primogeniture. Maybe it was. Old gold words, toned like concert violins, tuned to talk to God. After the French and Latin wars, I relished the poppies of dawn, though I thought this graceful foreign tongue was only meant for men. All right for the likes of Coleridge, but it gave me unpleasant dreams. They say we cannot speak it, and they're right. It was hard and slippery as pebbles, full of cornered consonants and pinched vowels. 
All said from the front of the mouth. No softness, no sorrow, no sweet lullabies. Until we took it by the neck and shook it. We sheared it, carded it, fleeced it. And finally wove it into something of The world of the poems is a very intense and total world. And I suppose I don't really share that with anybody, actually. I um, I don't usually write about domestic things. Not because I want to deny them, but because I don't allow myself those poems, maybe, sometimes. Um, the forces that make me write are darker and deeper and infinitely more powerful to use a very inadequate word, than can normally be expressed in any kind of domestic setting. Um, that's not to say that there aren't domestic poems I'd like to write and will write, or even that I want to make any division between them. But it, it doesn't take me that way, you know? It doesn't... Um, yeah. Also, there's a question of manners in a way, I think. I Just like I'd, I think it's bad poetry to bleed all over a page, generally speaking. And and I don't think anything is served by doing it. I think you refine, you know, you refine the pla- whatever makes you bleed, you refine that pain and you refine and I mean poetry if anything is about getting the essence in the end. It's constant refinement and cutting away and chipping away and um until what you have is something very I was going to say very raw. The the spark is raw. The whole action takes place between the spark and the shape, you know, what sparks the poem and the final shape on the page. That's the real action of writing. Um, and I suppose, ooh, that's an intensely, I mean, who would you let in there, you know? Who could you let in? Or if you let them in, most people, there are very few people probably that would even want to and they are either capable of getting in there or they're not. And I suppose the terror of a lot of... The, the real terror would be somebody who just landed in there without permission and there was nothing you could do about it. That would be... That would be frightening. Um, what, on the other hand, would probably be very wonderful is somebody who was invited in there and was able to, to um, share that place and that language. Um... I think that's rare, very rare. The writing itself, when it comes, is not in itself difficult, but what is immensely difficult, the way I work, generally speaking, what can be very difficult, is that period where I'm working towards the poems. And I, my particular method, I might be working towards 15 poems at the same time. You know, and a whole sequence, There's a, there are whole threads going on. And I might get as a little blessing on the way, one poem that came easy. But there is this huge circling around the poems that goes on and, and a, a spiralling in, ever decreasing, until eventually there's nothing for it but there's just to f- somehow force through to the actual centre of and force yourself to actually finally get through to what is the centre of that particular poem. And then a whole series might get written quite quickly. Um, that's hard, often. That's hard. Maybe 
it shouldn't be that hard. You know, I certainly often I could finish a poem a lot more quickly than I do. Um, that's always the question, though, isn't it? You know, how far to... Aaron, the second coming. Much grief is impolite. It spews the bile of life out of the source of death through decades of exile. The world is full of people dispossessed, and I'm one of them, and have no claim as such to bring to Aaron, except perhaps to some barbed old skeletons best hidden in the graveyards. Still I can overhear ancestors and island names, and faces too remind me of those I love and leave behind in distant places. Sometimes I feel the stares of others here, and touch the nerve of being a stranger. Then again I see the Christ, who never appears in glory, but in tiny kindnesses, which I take home to press against the cold of winter. When dusk comes to my door, each day a little later, I light a stove to quicken spring, and the store of small new things, which seabirds speak of faithfully. And wakeful, I watch less disturbed by those who died before their time, and the children then not born in mine. I'm going to read the Majumara. I'm sure you all know the boat. And uh, the, the, I, should, I should stress that this wasn't written in any reference to the boat herself or any of her history, but to um, so, something I think of uh, this whole, whole age-old relationship of men to women is maybe expressed in it. And uh, it is this business of that sort of trust in boats and, uh, of course, also a play on the Waijumara, the, the translation of the title, The Mermaid. The Waijumara. It is always the same. The men say little and the women talk. Guessing what the men are saying in the long gaps between words, always fishing for clues, they drop barbs, make humorous casts in an endless monologue of lures. They'll say anything for a bite. The men look hunted and stay silent. But I can make them sing out a shower of curses and commands. I challenge them to win against the sea and other men. They listen for the slightest whisper between me and the wind. They understand my lightest sigh and respond. Here in my belly, where men feel safe, I draw out their soft talk, rising, falling, low as breath. At ease and sure of their control, they are an Irish eloquent. I never let on anything but fall and rise and humour them. Thanks. Oh, I or
I think writing is an enormous act of faith, I have to say. An enormous act of faith. It has to be, you know. You, Even the belief in your own work, it's not there a lot of the time. Certainly, in my case, it's not. You look at a poem and you think, what is it? It's, it's it, you know, it dies on you, in front of you sometimes. Um, it's a belief in magic, in a way. It's the same area. It's... um. And, you know, really, if, if that's dead, ultimately, I certainly would not want to go on living. There would be absolutely no point for me in a life that was devoid of at least the possibility of miracles somewhere. I don't know. It's a very big question. In, 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 in that exploration, I'm discovering the enormous sensual power of the church. Uh, not not new to many people, but um, realising that where I lived, all you had was, you know, very basic houses, very basic. You wouldn't have had paintings, you wouldn't have had any of those luxuries, you wouldn't have had velvets, stuffs. Um, but you went to the church on Sunday and there it all was. The gold, the velvet, the altar cloths, those fantastic vestments that they used to wear in those days. Um, cloth of gold, incense and that effect on the senses must have been absolutely huge the bells um, the altar rails being the, the, the little candelabras whatever you call them those wonderful shiny um, candle holders with you know about 50 candles on them being pulled back all those sounds are totally real to me still I can hear every one of them at every stage of the mass I can remember clearly the breath the pattern that people's breath made on the cross for the kissing of the cross because it was cold and when you breathed on it and the priest used to use this cotton wool to wipe it off. Um, that was a, a huge impact. Now, that was just a set, the, an impact on the senses but it was still... The images stand for me as... It was as images of enormous longing you know, whether you believed that there was a miracle taking place every Sunday at the sacrifice of the Mass, which, of course, as a child, I did, and I had severe trouble with that later on. But whether you believed it or not, you wanted to be transformed. And you were transformed at an early stage. And then later that stopped happening. And that leaves an enormous gap when nothing can make that transformation for you anymore. Um... I think it's the fall, it's the loss of innocence, it's it's the loss of radiance. That's that's what it is now. That's if if the next if the poems now are coming from anywhere, that's where they're coming from. It's it's a cold place. Let my breath rise from the gilded contours of the hills, from the boiling sea, from the rock of slime head. Let light mesh with wind and quench hell for me. That a seventh wave may pitch and toss and carry me senseless through the coming storm.
But if I am to drown, drink me deep. Do not take me on the undertow, but rising, the steep green plain of inhalation, poised to whisper a name, a plea, a floating incantation.